Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Well, hello and welcome to this exciting 100th edition of So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am, as always, your host, Nico Perino, and um, today, in honor of our 100th episode, we are joined in FIRE's DC offices, top floor here, the DC offices in the conference room, by a panel of distinguished guests who have been on the show before. Uh, And we are going to discuss the state of free speech in America. It's going to be a wide-ranging discussion, and we'll see where it takes us. These guests include, starting over here to my left, Jonathan Rausch. He is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and the author of six books, including, notably, the 1993 classic Kindly Inquisitors, The New Attacks on Free Thought. It's a classic here at FIRE. It's a classic for anyone who cares about issues related to free expression. And Jonathan was the first ever guest on our show way back in May of 2016. Uh, when we had him on to discuss Kindly Inquisitors, he's a longtime friend of ours. So, Jonathan, thanks for coming back for the 100th episode. And to his left is Nadine Strawson. She's a professor at New York Law School. And from 1991 to 2008, she served as the president of the American Civil Liberties Union. And she has appeared on the show three times. The first was in August 2017. To discuss- on my birthday. Was that your yes, birthday? Yes, it was. Wow. <laughs> Great way to celebrate. Yeah. Well, also a Virgo? <laughs> No, Leo. Oh, okay. Oh, one of you. <laughs> Arrogant and brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were discussing on your birthday in 2017, Charlottesville, uh, and the events that yeah, occurred yeah. there. Uh, and I want to address that a little yeah. bit later in the show, because we're two years out from that now. Uh, the second time was October of 2017, when we had a live event at NYU to mm-hmm. discuss viewpoint diversity in the academy. And then the third time was in June of 2018 to discuss your then-recently released book, mm-hmm. Hate, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship. A book, by the way, that everybody should read. It's the most thorough takedown of hate speech laws I've ever read. It is, in fact. And I was actually looking in my office to see if I could bring up a copy to show, but I I read it on my Kindle, so (laughs) I didn't have a copy. And we had a bunch in the office because you spoke at one of our conferences, I believe, and then we we gave them all away. Thank you very much, and it it quotes everybody here, so. And we'll actually... I want to discuss a little bit from that book later in the conversation because Angela Merkel recently made some um, comments about hate speech that I think are worth bringing up. Uh, And then to my right is Bob Corn Revere. He is a prominent First Amendment litigator, a partner at Davis Wright Tremaine, and outside counsel on many, if not most, of FIRE's Stand Up for Speech litigation project cases. Uh, Bob first appeared on the podcast back in March of 2017 to discuss censorship and technology. He was subsequently a debater in the Masterpiece Cake Shop episode from March of 2018, in which we simulcast with the First Amendment salons. And then most recently, you were a panelist in our uh, 2018 Supreme Court Review episode. And then, of course, finally, to round out our panel is my boss and the president and CEO of FIRE, Greg Lukianoff. He'll be very familiar with most of our listeners, and he's our most frequent guest, so I'm not going to go through all the shows, (laughs) Greg, that you have been on. Uh, But... As many of you know, he is the author, co-author most recently of the New York Times best-selling book, The Coddling of the American Mind, which came out last year. Welcome back, Greg. Thanks. Okay, so I don't want to waste too much time. I want to jump right into the action. But uh, first, a, a couple of points. Uh, I'm going to address a question to each of our guests uh, right off the bat. But please jump in, rebut, 
add clarification, um, refute anyone else's points. Uh, as Christopher Hitchens used to say, you can't get light without heat. So um, <laughs> heat is welcome. Jonathan, I want to start with you, and I want to ask a question not related to anything that we discussed on that podcast we recorded, but to some comments that you made back in 2013 at the Museum of Sex in New York City. It was an event that was hosted by Reason and that Greg actually interviewed you. Uh, this is for the reissue of Kindly Inquisitors. You were talking as, as part of that conversation about Ender's Game, the movie, which was coming out at the time. And the, the movie, of course, is based on a book by Orson Scott Card. And there was efforts at that time to boycott or um, stop from releasing this movie because Orson Scott's card was a public um, critic of same-sex marriage. He also um, uh, opposed homosexual activity. And uh, you didn't like the protesters' tactics in that case to try and get the movie shut down to um, essentially um, fire people from their jobs as a result. Uh, this was 2013. Since then, this idea of cancel culture has taken off and become a cultural meme. Yep, yep. Steve Bannon was disinvited from the New York Festival Ideas. Errol Morris can't even make a documentary about Steve Bannon that it, I've seen and is actually quite critical of him. We've got Colin Kaepernick, who can't play in the NFL. We've got Dave Chappelle, who uh, I guess there's an effort to cancel him, his most recent specials, although he might be too big to cancel. At this <laughs> got point. the Twain Award. <laughs> <laughs> and then we can't forget Kanye West. I wanted to ask you, six years out, from that Orson Scott card kerfuffle. What do you make of this cancel culture meme? Are these calls for canceling someone, are they a more speech approach? Or is there something fundamentally detrimental about this culture to open discourse? Well, first thing to say is that my biggest problem with cancel culture is that no one has tried to cancel me. <laughs> it would be great for business if I could be the target of one of these campaigns. It would elevate me hugely. My speaking fees and book sales will go up. It's one of the problems with cancel. Yeah, it's interesting, Nico. In 2013, we didn't have a word for this yet, but it was starting. Brandon Ike, the CEO of Mozilla, was fired because years ago he'd given a few hundred dollars to an anti-gay marriage initiative, which had nothing to do with his job or his position on discrimination. And we thought, gee, this is kind of, this is kind of disturbing. So the way I think about it, since I work for Brookings, let's just go right up to 30,000 feet. <laughs> I've been rereading John Stuart Mill. Mm -hmm. Does anyone remember chapter three? The famous chapter is chapter two, and that's about how you can only learn by having candid discussion with multiple points of view. If this was our we were last have a quiz, I would have Right, this is, this is the chapter where he says, the, the man who knows only his own side of the case does not know even that. Yeah. Chapter three is the next chapter, mm -hmm. and it's an extended warning of conformism, social right. conformism right. as a social threat to the kind of diverse dialogue out of which knowledge comes. Mm -hmm. And he sees this as a threat to knowledge, an epistemic threat, as well as a social atmosphere that represses open conversation. Then I look at Tocqueville, mm -hmm. who's writing even earlier about America, and he's got marvelous passages that vividly describe what we call cancel culture, where people are afraid to stay stuff because mm -hmm. they're worried about pylons mm -hmm. and the job consequences. That's where we are today. Mm -hmm. We're now battling, we've kind of, we still got conventional problems with censorship. Those never go away, they never will, but we're also moving into these cultural problems where it's become easy and socially rewarded to do pylons and cancel campaigns and intimidation campaigns. And that's something, no, that's not more speech. But is it new? Well, no, I mean, it seems like we learned nothing from the McCarthy era. 
right? I mean, the whole notion then was, if you had the wrong political ideas, your job was at risk, didn't have to be some sort of government initiative. It's that people were policed for orthodoxy, and, you know, there were serious consequences if they fell short. And this is really the same phenomenon. It's just updated with social media and with different ideas, but it's still enforcing a certain set of ideas, and it doesn't matter whether or not they're related to the job you do or how good you are at it. It's just a way of enforcing it through social pressure. And as uh, Jonathan said, the other Jonathan, well, John Stuart Mill, right? John and John, and John without the H. Um, his whole book, he says at the very beginning, he is not addressing government coercion, mm -hmm. that the greatest danger to free speech and free thought is from social pressure and peer pressure. And quite frankly, I had forgotten that until these um, current phenomena uh, manifested themselves. And then I reread John Stuart Mill yet again with that new perspective. Anthony Cronman at Yale has a fairly new book in which he is very, he really stresses that de Tocqueville made this message very strongly that he saw it as the downside of democracy was that, um, yeah, government might not be repressive, but your fellow citizens might well be. Yeah, well, I, I actually, our last episode on this podcast was with Dale E. Miller about John Stuart Mill and in particular on liberty and in particular chapter two. And Dale provided a little bit of context to the writing of the book. And I guess John Stuart Mill uh, was concerned about social conformity because he was kind of a, a, um, a radical guy. He was, his, the person he was with, uh, the woman he was with was actually married. And so he's concerned about that. And in the introduction, he even says that I'm worried that there aren't any great thinkers out there anymore. It's a lot of Social conformity. Um, it was also happened to be the same year, coincidentally, that or on the species. origin of species yeah. came out. So <laughs> that might have changed a little bit because in chapter two he addresses mostly religious conformity and the inability to dissent on religious matters, and then you get uh, on the origin of species, which might have changed. Footnote for anyone who may be confused: I think you you're referring to chapter three. No, I think I, it's the conformist. The, that's ch that's chapter three. Chapter two, though, is the the free speech. The free speech. Yeah. The yeah. free speech chapter. Yeah, it's a, it's a great book. But I, I think the question of is that free speech is a very, very serious question. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that question, I'm not quite satisfied with how Mill answers it because he does acknowledge that uh, you have a right to criticize. I would add you have a right to boycott, right? That is sure. exercising a First Amendment right. And the ACLU's policy guide has long said that boycotts are, on the one hand, an exercise of free speech, but when they are exercised against books or other kinds of expression, they're very dangerous. And so we want to discourage people from engaging in them, but they would never be punishable. Well, it, well, it is the exercise of more speech up to a point, mm -hmm. right? At the point it becomes coercive, then it crosses that line. Just in the way a boycott is fine, but if you burn down the store, well, not yeah, so fine. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know that is where cancel culture uh, can easily cross a line. If, it, if you move from cancel culture to Antifa. Uh, but there are some cases where I think it's not so clear where yeah. the line is. And I thought um, a recent piece that captured that very well was an op-ed by Suzanne Nossel, who's the head of Pan America. Um, and the title, which probably was written by some headline writer at the Washington Post, uh, really gripped me because I've been such a preacher about counterspeech. And the title was, When Does Counterspeech Become Censorship? 
And that is, I mean, if we define censorship as anybody who is effectively exercising power to suppress speech, I have to acknowledge I'm advocating counter speech against hate speech or disinformation or other potentially harmful, deleterious content uh, because I do want those messages to be suppressed. And so, but but isn't the answer contained in the Woodward Report talking about campus speech Mm -hmm. where it preserves the right or the duty even to protest ideas that you disagree with when they're brought to campus, but then says that if that counter speech becomes censorial, if you try and shout down the speaker, if you use well, a disinvitation. Well, that's a clear case, yeah. Bob, but when, it's, it, when you just, because you don't want to be criticized, you don't want to be ostracized, sure. you don't want to be called an ist or an ob, yeah. so you engage yeah. in self-censorship. <laughs> yeah. Ist or an ob. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Well, can, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Add, add on to this. The, um, yeah, because I do, the counter speech is free speech, and certainly calling for boycotts, you have the, you, you have the right to do that. Um, but one of the advantages I actually think, frankly, FIRE has is that we also have to think about academic freedom, which forces us to think about things like the production of ideas, things about the kind of tolerant society we want to live in. So you end up having to, you know, and people have the right to say that the First Amendment shouldn't exist. So when we're dealing with student protests, for example, when they were trying to get like Nicholas Christakis fired uh, for, from Yale, um, it, for me, there was no tension in between saying they absolutely have the right to call for me to be fired um, and they're wrong. Um, because for the production of ideas for these kind of, because the habit of mind in which you go against conformism, where you actually go against the crowd, is a very hard thing to cultivate in people. And, I, and so it's, sometimes it's a difference between freedom of speech and um, the, the, uh, the ability to um, think as broadly as possible. Um, and that, t- that takes an extra effort. That's where academic freedom is supposed to come in. And it's supposed to have this kind of artificial kind of discipline of open-mindedness. Um, that it doesn't come naturally to people at all. So we have to create space for that. Yeah, but it also calls for school administrators to show some moral courage. Absolutely. A spine is a terrible thing to waste. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of the the discussion right now is about free speech and open discourse, but how much of this should be a discussion just about good tactics? I mean, if you are trying to cancel someone, presumably because you don't like their ideas, um, the best result would be to change their mind, right? And so the question is, how many minds are you actually changing? Canceling is not about changing minds, and it's not about adding information to the conversation. So you don't think people who are trying to cancel... They're not. So so we're now in the realm of values, not legal rights. Right. And free speech values, and free speech values are about adding information, and you can never have too much diversity of viewpoint in free speech values. Cancel culture values are about shut up, he explained. Yep. The, goal here is, the goal here is for a group, a usually self-defined group, to express its solidarity in contrast to another group who it hates, mm-hmm. preferably by shutting it down or shutting it up, or if not that, then at least expressing outrage against it. So as John Haidt, Greg's co-author, has said, this behavior is not about communicating. It's about display. Yeah, virtue signal- yeah. signaling. Virtue signaling, display of tribal colors. Think of people painting their faces and putting on big headdresses and going to the top of a hill to shake their spears at the tribe on the next hill. That's what's going on here. So we're, we're now in a different realm than traditional million free speech. We're doing something else in cancel culture. It's actually interesting that you bring that up because... In preparing for this podcast, I Googled cancel culture because I wanted to provide some examples up front. I was wondering if there's a place that consolidated all of them. There is not. Uh, But the first entry is the Wikipedia entry on it. And uh, in that Wikipedia entry, 
the big reference or um, citation for it is Greg, your book with oh. uh, Jonathan Haidt, <laughs> really? Coddling of the American Mind. Oh, nice. Okay. They say, well, Greg and John call this call-out culture. Yeah. Right. Uh, but in Wikipedia, they use it as a synonym for um, cancel culture. Oh, well, that's pretty cool. So an interesting thing I discovered I there. But, you know, I think the, the response of courage is so important because... Yes, it is very tempting to avoid criticism, to avoid controversy. Uh, what's especially disturbing to me is when we see too little courage on the part of tenured faculty members. <laughs> oh my God, because that yes. is the whole reason that tenure exists. Yep. And I also think of um, some Supreme Court decisions, forgive me, I'm a, a lawyer, but this is relevant, on the tension between privacy in voting and signing petitions on the one hand, and the public right to information when you're engaging in the political sphere. And Antonin Scalia so strongly came out uh, for transparency, and he had such a great line. I mean, he harks back to, uh, he may even have quoted de Tocqueville, I don't remember that, but he says, you know, if we don't have the courage of our convictions, then we're no longer the land of the free and the home of the brave. <laughs> <laughs> I think we could spend a lot of time discussing disclosure laws because I think we might have some differing opinions there. But, you know, I've been just an aspect of that. I know you want to move on, but something I've been wrestling with as I talk to students, and especially professors, and especially tenured professors about this, is who are the real snowflakes? <laughs> yeah. In a situation where people are allowing themselves to be shut down, yeah. now I realize it's very hard. Once, if you're at the, the target and you're suddenly targeted, you get on a plane, and 10 hours later you get off, and you've got thousands of hateful Twitter messages, and you're, you're in trouble with your employer. This is a terrible situation. And thank God for organizations like FIRE that exist to help people in those situations. Still, isn't there an obligation on lots of people, including students and professors, to not shut up? Mm -hmm. I ask them, the most common question I get on campuses yeah. from students, especially freshmen and first years and second years, yeah. is what do I say when someone disqualifies me from a conversation right. because I'm white or male or yeah. whatever? Yeah. And I wrestled with that. Yeah until I finally realized after several failed attempts, the right answer to them isn't, I can't tell you what to say. What I can tell you is to keep saying. Mm -hmm. Just don't let them right. shut you down because they can't. Right. Yeah. There's nothing they can do to you, so keep talking. That's the key. And one of the other things, I think, is that we should not necessarily apologize just because oh, yeah. somebody is demanding that. Absolutely. And, and one of the best pieces that I saw in this, but quite frankly, I think he's much better positioned to say it than the rest of us, is Randy Kennedy. Mm -hmm. um, in one of the recent incidents where, who has done at least one fabulous podcast for you, I yes. know, because I Randy literally stopped by the side of the road because it went on like 40 minutes after yeah. it was supposed to end and I, I just <laughs> wanted to hear it. It was yeah. phenomenal. Fantastic um, and Randy who wrote an entire book for those who don't know it, he's African-American, Harvard Law School professor, an entire book many years ago with the full n-word when um, if one could say that, uh, you know, for purposes of critiquing it and uh, the history. Um, but he's been very critical not only of um, administrators who fire faculty members or call for them to be fired because they've used the word for pedagogical purposes. But he recently was critical of a faculty member for apologizing for having done so. Yep. Um, 
which I thought was very, very interesting. And I really just got to add, add a point on this, and I want to direct yeah. this all also to the also to the viewing audience. Um, we've, I've been doing this for 18 years now at FIRE, and one of the great disappointments of my career has been coming in as a believer in tenure and then watching how frankly cowardly a lot of these professors act, even when their colleagues are getting in trouble, even when their students are getting in, um, are, uh, are getting in trouble. And what's amazing, when, what people need to know is, I've had case after case where a single faculty member, a single donor, a single alum actually making enough, of, enough noise about something has won a case. And the fact that we have, we've had many situations on campus where no professor is willing to come forward and actually um, do the right thing or stand up for academic freedom, even for speech they don't like, is one of the more depressing parts of my career. You're, you're a social science aficionado. You've written a book, that, social science book. Um, I, I thought I saw something recently that there's pretty, so, pretty good social science research that apologizing actually makes things worse in a yeah. lot of contexts. <laughs> yes. and, and this might explain yeah. uh, why Trump is like a, a it's treated in it that. shouldn't if we had different cultural norms um, it, it wouldn't be uh, but now on campus in particular it's like it, we I usually when people ask us when they when they come to me directly um, should I apologize I'm like listen listen to your conscience but I now have to add a caveat um, you it will be treated as if you had admitted to being a witch yes it would be treated like a confession and things will probably get worse. Don't uh, apologize. But it's so interesting because I've noticed um, recently a couple cases of campuses where there would be explosions over words that were, made people uncomfortable or offended. And you could juxtapose, and I was wondering whether there's a larger pattern, which you might be aware of, but in these uh, paired situations when the president would abjectly apologize and capitulate to demands, that didn't satisfy the demands. It fueled more yes. demands. Whereas when the president took a strong line and said, you know, we're going to have positive countermeasures, we can have discussions, we can have education, but I am not going to punish these yep. people, it just sort of quelled the protest. This has been clear as day throughout my career. And actually one of the people who was really great about it um, is one of the now very dis rightfully discredited people, uh, President of Penn, Graham Spanier. But he would come out and say, Despicable speech for the Republican who dressed up like a Nazi for a, for a party, um, but protected, and we're not we're not investigating anything like that. And for the first ten years of my career, presidents would routinely come out and make these statements, and the case would be over. I think the turning point, though, may have unfortunately been the Brown case um, involved uh, when uh, who who was that? The Martin Gregorian. No, no. Um, the uh, where the president of Brown, um, there, there was a shout down of the um, chief of police under oh, Giuliani. This is 2013. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 2013, and she came out actually with a very strong free speech, academic freedom mm -hmm. statement at the end, uh, but then just got kind of picked to pieces over the course of months and started oh. sort of backtracking. And that was a moment when it was really important to go to the university president and say, we support you, we have your back. And I think maybe people kind of forgot to do that. So when you're you know, dealing with university presidents and you think they're doing the right thing, be sure to say so and loudly, so at least they know that someone There's is a on the side. There's a there for yeah. that. Yeah. Well, I want to move on now to the next topic. And Nadine, I want to start with you on this one, where, as I referenced earlier, we're two years out from Charlottesville, uh, where, as I think most of our listeners know, there was a group of white nationalists, white supremacists who were rallying in that community to protest the removal of a Robert E. Lee statue. Uh, they brought tiki torches to University of Virginia on Friday night. On, on Saturday night, there were violent clashes resulting <clears throat> in uh, a couple of deaths, including uh, Heather Heyer getting mowed down uh, by a man in a vehicle. There was more, than, more the, than one death? Yeah, well, was, two law enforcement officers were killed yes. in a helicopter yeah. that crashed. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. 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 But after that, 
um, you know, we in the free speech community were kind of besieged on all sides. Uh, and of course we have arguments for why we're the wrong people to be besieged in that situation and we can perhaps get because into Because people, I can't tell you how many, I mean this comes up every time I speak uh, and I have spoken in Charlottesville itself and people make the post hoc, propter hoc, a logical fallacy. Um, ACLU defended freedom for the unite the right white nationalists to speak. People were killed. Therefore, the ACLU was responsible for those deaths. And mm -hmm. we saw that most dramatically um, just a few months later at the College of William and Mary when my colleague uh, Claire Gastaniego, who is the executive director of the ACLU of Virginia, was asked to speak there, ironically, about students' rights to protest on campus. And she uh, is a graduate of that school herself. And she was proudly shouted down by students who described themselves as affiliated with Black Lives Matter, who proudly videotaped the whole thing and bragged about shutting it down and had signs that said, liberalism is white supremacy. Uh, ACLU would have defended Hitler too. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to ask you because you've been touring the country discussing your book about mm -hmm. hate speech. Mm -hmm. Has Charlottesville changed anyone's perception, or ha can, can you, do you get the sense that anyone that that Charlottesville has changed the perception for some people about free speech itself, about hate speech? Um, I'm, obviously, the retort is that the police completely failed in Charlottesville. Uh, we're making a documentary right now. Uh, Chris is behind the camera over there, and he's taking a look back at a lot of the archival footage surrounding Skokie. And I can't even begin to tell you the number of police that were there when protesters were meeting with uh, right. protests, with the, when the Jewish Defense League right. was meeting with uh, Frank Collin yeah. and the National Socialist Party of America, uh, and they were coordinating. We have all the. It, yeah. it was incredible. It's, that was absent well, I in know. Charlottesville. And as the very excellent report documented uh, that was done at the behest of the city council, and it was a, a sad, fail, tragic failure of law enforcement at every level from the um, uh, state on down. Uh, I wouldn't say increased, Nico, because before Charlottesville, people were still saying, uh, I can barely give a speech anywhere even to this day where people say, I was a card-carrying member of the ACLU until you defended the Nazis in Skokie. <laughs> you know, the gentleman who was the executive director of the ACLU at the time, R.A. Nyer, has said, Nadine, if every person who said they resigned over Skokie really was a member, we would have been the largest organization <laughs> in the country. So, um, and so, yet, ACLU <laughs> lost, according to his estimate, 30,000 members lost half a million dollars in, in donations. Over Skokie? Which, Over Skokie, And, and that's yeah. in like 1978 dollars. Yeah. Exactly. So that's, that's a and, lot and, of money. And, you know, so two points of observation. One is we quite quickly recouped the membership because we, and maybe different people who said you really do yeah. put your money where your mouth is. You really are neutrally standing up for free speech principles. Uh, but I, the second point is I always bring this up when I hear that there are new and different problems now when you read what clearly are, to me, very disturbing statistics about how many students and other people today want to censor hate speech. You know, if 15% of card-carrying ACLU members didn't want to defend it back in 1977 and 78, I think it's just, it's a chronic 
problem. People see this hateful expression and there's an instinctive reaction that we ought to suppress it. I want to tell you the single most interesting and important discussion I've had about Charlottesville since then. It was with Susan Bro, and I still get a chill when I say her name. She's the mother of Heather Heyer. And I was doing an event uh, for The Economist magazine in Chicago, and when I found out that Susan Bro was going to be on my panel, I got a little bit nervous because, sure. you know, she may very well have felt that the ACLU was responsible for, in some way, uh, for her daughter's death. And to my amazement, she was the most eloquent, forceful defender of free wow. speech. She was asked uh, by the moderator from uh, an economist journalist, um, would you oppose the Unite the Right rally coming back to demonstrate again? She said, absolutely not. Wow. And she, as far as I know, has no legal education, not that that's either here nor there, any background in free speech. Can I ask you a very difficult question? which is, sure. do you believe that those protesters who were there in Charlottesville on that day had the right or should again have the right to express their views? I do, and that's not a popular view, and I will tell you why. Uh, I'm not telling you why it's not a popular view. I think that's obvious. But um, I think once we take away the right to free speech, we may never get it back. My big concern with losing free speech is who makes the decision what speech is allowable and what speech is not. Right. And once you set it up so that there's always one group deciding, that group can change at any given time. She gave the classic arguments about, you know, if they can censor those views, then they can censor my views. They could have censored my daughter's views. And it was so spontaneous and so eloquent and so moving. I strongly recommend that you That's interview amazing. her. And, yeah. and I, I yeah. might add to that as a member of a community, the gay community yeah. that has been historically terrorized and beaten. And of course, hate speech was spewed from pulpits across America for many years from politicians on television. That something that she could have attested to is to the extent that we, um, we shift the blame for what happened um, to Heather Heyer, right? To Heather Heyer in Charlottesville. To the ACLU, we remove it from the white supremacist behind the wheel of yes. the car. Mm -hmm. yeah. And if you're the victim in that situation, the last thing you want to be doing is letting the bad guys off the hook. Mm -hmm. Yes. And probably at some level she understood that. She understood that Nazi mm -hmm. is the focus of blame. Mm -hmm. yeah. But it's interesting that we have these two historic touchstones. We have Skokie in the 1970s, we have Charlottesville uh, in 2017. And, you know, they provide this sort of moment to compare and contrast and ask ourselves where free speech is going. Because after the ACLU's principal defense of the right to free speech in 1970s, uh, it became sort of the tagline, defending Nazis in Skokie. That's what a principled person would do if you're really committed yep. to neutral principles and a First Amendment that protects everybody, even the most disgusting. But here we have 2017, and it isn't just a few misguided Nazis in Skokie. It's, it seems like it's Nazis everywhere because you have this display of tiki torches with, mm -hmm. who, where did these people come from? 
Apparently, you know, Home Depot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and so, you know, for people who are skeptical of protecting free speech, it seems like, oh, you let these people speak and they're all over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what they ignore is the week after in Boston, you had a yep. repeat or an attempted repeat of the same sort of unite the right sort of thing. 40,000 people showed up. Uh, and you had the Nazis outnumbered 800 to 1. You also had the lessons from Charlottesville having the police in Boston able to control things and make sure that there wasn't yeah, the same thing. I, I, I wonder if some of the activists are catching on to the idea that in many cases the best thing to do with these jerks is ignore them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they're clearly, I think they came to understand in the University of California mm-hmm. uh, that it did, it, it, all it did is elevate Milo Yiannopoulos' mm-hmm. speaking fees. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. To, to ride against him. I want to ask you about Boston really quickly because uh, Fire co-founder Harvey Silverglate wrote a piece in which he said there was probably too much separation in that case yeah. between mm. the protesters and the counter-protesters. So it's a fine line it is. that the police have to draw there. I, I, Harvey had a great quote, I forget what it was, but he said the police essentially created a desert. Uh, mm. And so the, the speakers weren't able to engage with, with each other. How do you draw that line? Well, so close in time, it's hard, because once you've had a horrific example like Charlottesville, it's really difficult to moderate what your response is going to be. I think we can only learn over time as we look at these different examples, and and a lesson from Boston as well, maybe not so much of a separation. Uh, I want to ask a question that I think there'll be some disagreement perhaps on this panel about, but the idea of marching with weapons, demonstrating Mm -hmm. with weapons, where where does that fall in the realm of free expression, for example, if you want to protest potential restrictions on the Second yes. Amendment in Virginia where you're allowed to open carry, mm-hmm. uh, in some cases assault style like mm-hmm. weapons, uh, it's very symbolic in that mm-hmm. case. Should people be allowed to do that? Because I, I know there are other contexts where police will restrict people from even bringing bottles into a demonstration. In this case, we're talking about guns. I, I spoke with um, you know, Ira Glasser and, and Norman Siegel about this and they said, well, if you take that approach, then the Black Panthers in California wouldn't have been able to carry guns. Then the, uh, the, the Justice League down in Mississippi that always carried guns to protect civil rights marchers wouldn't have been able to carry guns. But I understand the argument. Mm-hmm. Uh, but how do you separate that out from the symbolic? Well, it's very interesting. I'll tell you how the ACLU has answered that very recently and the uh, folks that you referred to. Uh, were with the ACLU defending free speech rights for the for the Black Panthers um, to demonstrate with arms. Uh, but after the blowback we got from Charlottesville, which interestingly enough, internally was not nearly as dramatic as it had been after Skokie, but it was enough that it got press attention. Several hundred staff members uh, asked for a reexamination of the policy, which did not happen. But what did happen was the national legal director, David Cole, um, consulted with local legal directors and others about are there ways that we could handle these cases and better explain our position Mm -hmm. to the public so they understand we're not defending their ideas. And, you know, it's people who are anti-racist who have the biggest stake in defending freedom for unpopular ideas and so forth. But as part of that report, Um, uh, One of the guidelines was when we take these cases in the future, we will be much more attentive to all of the specific facts and circumstances to try to distinguish um, effectively a true threat 
which intimidates people and makes them afraid and therefore violates their free speech rights as well as their other freedom versus solely hateful ideas that does not rise to the level of a punishable true threat. And that one of the factors that we will consider in that analysis is whether people are carrying firearms, which all of which makes sense, except I was surprised. I actually called David and said, but so we're not going to categorically treat the carrying of firearms as you know, being enough to demonstrate that there's a true threat? Because I was putting myself in that situation and thinking, I don't think I would have been a counter-protester if the people I was counter-protesting against were armed. And David said, well, you know, we've got to take it on a case-by-case basis. Suppose it was absolutely clear that the firearms were not loaded, that they had been inspected in advance. Suppose that those firearms were particularly relevant to the subject Mm -hmm. of the protest, namely um, demonstrating in favor of Second Amendment rights. So that's the ACLU's answer. Probably a factor that weighs against protection, but not absolutely. Yeah. Bob, as a litigator, what's your perspective? It's a difficult call. Um, I think that just based on history with ACLU uh, defending Black Panthers, defending others, that uh, uh, where firearms were part of uh, the uh, demonstration, it's really hard to have a categorical rule. Uh, but once you start saying we're going to take it case by case, that leads you into some difficult decisions too, because it may look over time like you've taken sides in the debate. Some In some protests, you'll defend the, the First Amendment rights and others you won't, and if there appears to be a pattern, then it looks like simply a political choice. Well, my, my view on that, for what it's worth, would be that it's not an interesting or important question. This is carrying firearms. <laughs> It's, it's so far, so far from the center of constitutionally protected speech yeah. and so rare that I don't really care one way or the other. I said heat, Jonathan, not too much heat, though. <laughs> Just kidding. Many of the cases Just we handle are so far from the center of the First Amendment and, uh, and rare. Uh, I don't think that makes them less important. It makes them less important, for sure. Actually, We'd be much more cases. worried if the government were out there saying you can't carry an anti-Trump banner than if they were out yeah. there saying you can't carry a loaded firearm. But I think That's true, yeah. but many of the most important First Amendment principles have been decided in those rare cases and in those cases where it seems like it's a trivial issue. And yet, that's where the principles become the most important. It, but, you know, I, I'm so sorry. It, at the University of Texas, where they allowed concealed carry on campus like about a year or two ago, some faculty members did bring a First Amendment lawsuit saying that they would feel deterred in saying certain things and addressing controversial subjects if they feared that there might be an angry student there with a firearm. And I think that's a realistic fear. We yeah. talk about having the courage of your convictions, yeah, to be shouted down, but not potentially to be shot down. Yeah, smile when you say that part. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always weary of justifying restrictions on expression based on subjective opinions of potential listeners, because I feel like you enter a slippery slope there. But Bob, I want to move now away from the cultural questions, the questions about events, and bring it now to the legislature. Capitol Hill is right behind us. And there's some discussion now in the halls of Congress about reigning Oh, they discuss things there, do they? (laughs) That's about all they do. (laughs) But there's some discussions about reigning in 
quote unquote, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Ooh. Act, um, which was, of course, passed in 1996, I believe. Totally destroyed the internet, by the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right. On the contrary, <laughs> allowed the internet to flourish. I mean, this yeah, is. Well, exactly. He was being sarcastic. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. know, I know. <laughs> and somebody wrote a book about it called The 26 Words That Created the Internet. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't have those 26 words in front of me, although I guess if anyone could probably repeat them, it might be Bob. But in <laughs> essence, it says. Not without crib notes. <laughs> in essence, it says that the responsibility for expression online uh, lies with the speaker, not with the yep. host. So if you, for example, are on Facebook and you post on your friend's wall something, uh, you're responsible for that expression, not Facebook. There are now efforts underway to scale that back uh, for many reasons, including ensuring political neutrality or um, to allow for the, the suing of companies for noxic, noxious expression. I want to ask you, Bob, what are you seeing? Do you think this movement to rein in Section 230 will have any success in the coming years? And how concerned are you about it? Well, I'm quite concerned about it. Uh, I'll be answering your last question first, uh, because uh, it was the one thing that Congress did that actually supported and had a beneficial impact on the ability of the internet to be a forum where everybody can speak. Now, the downside of that is it was a forum where everybody could speak. And <laughs> who knew people were going to say such awful things to each other? And so uh, Section 230 has worked remarkably well. Courts have enforced it uh, very consistently. And that's why a lot of people are upset. And they would like to see uh, uh, more restrictions on the platforms by imposing potential liability on them for third-party speech. But then that's the way internet speech works. It wouldn't be the, the place that allows universal speech that it is if anyone who allowed you to post could be responsible for negative consequences of the things that third parties post. Uh, and so the drive to rein in Section 230 to, remove, uh, to either remove it altogether or to modify it, which by the way has, has already, already been happened. done yeah. with FOSTA uh, to a certain extent, um, is a very dangerous trend, uh, and it's not going to stop with just FOSTA. Anytime there's going to be negative speech that people think has bad consequences, uh, you know, should be the target of the next amendment to Section two, uh, 230. Uh, now, what it shows is a real policy schizophrenia, because on the one hand, we have people saying, oh, the internet platforms have too much power. Uh, they're making all of these decisions for us. And now we want to impose legal obligations on them to exert more power. People on one hand will talk about network neutrality, saying that we need to preserve free speech on the internet, uh, thereby rein in those companies. And now they say we want to remove or modify Section 230, which will force the platforms to exert more control over speech that is available on the internet. It's It's crazy from a policy perspective and from a First Amendment perspective. And I think what it will do, actually what it has already done in the case that we're handling involving FOSTA, is raise the question of whether or not the principles of Section 230, which protects platforms for the liability for third-party speech, is constitutionally required and not just a statutory requirement. Because if you modify uh, the uh, protections from liability for platforms in Section 230, you are now selectively allowing some kinds of immunities and not others, 
and that's where the First Amendment kicks wow. in. Wow, who's your client in that? Uh, Woodhull Freedom Foundation. Oh, that's great. And, um, actually, I think it would be really valuable. Could we, could we explain FOSTA to the to, to the audience? Yes, because yes. It, because a lot of, I, I've, I've tried to explain this to people who don't know anything about it, and, and they it, and it sounds so good, right? It, right. So yeah. I've actually got some information here. Oh, go, go ahead. Go. So so FOSTA was the House bill. It was the Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act. How could you be against that? Exactly. Right? <laughs> and that, that's the response yeah. I got. And SESTA was the Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act from the Senate bill. Now this creates, as Bob was. A, alluding to an exception to Section 230 that means that website publishers would be responsible if third parties are found to be posting ads for prostitution, including consensual sex work, where it's allowed on their platforms. Uh, now, an unintended, although I can't say unintended consequence of it because I, I know that the lawmakers were aware of these uh, consequences because there were groups like EFF that were raising no, but also women's rights groups mm -hmm. and um, and and certainly sex workers organizations, but other feminist groups were saying that sounds very good, but it's actually going to have many negative consequences, yeah. as your client indicates. Well, in the immediate aftermath, this was uh, March of 2018. Numerous websites took action and they censored. Uh, portions of their websites in response, not because that there was any prostitution or solicitation taking place on those portions of the websites, but rather they didn't want to take the risk. Sure. And this speaks to what would happen if you got rid of Section 230, which is websites would have two choices, either shut, shut it down altogether or invest all the time and resources that would be necessary in order to police individual pieces of content, every single piece of expression that takes place on that website, which would be impossible uh, at scale, I think. That's right. And, and since you went through the legislative history, one of the things that they did as well is at the last minute when they combined the Senate and House bills was to not just remove some of the immunities from Section 230, but they also added a new federal crime for anything that, quote, facilitates prostitution, whatever that means. And so as a consequence, uh, it means anyone involved in sex work, even both legal or sex work that is not legal, uh, now faces the possibility of, of liability under this federal law. Um, so our clients include not just uh, Woodhull Freedom Foundation, but it Can also includes- Can you explain includes, what that is? Uh, Woodhull Freedom Foundation is a, uh, an organization that exists here in DC that protects uh, all forms of sexual freedom as a, as a basic human right. Uh, it uh, has among the people that are part of it sex workers, but others who are simply involved in and interested in protecting just rights of sexual freedom. Um, it also, our plaintiff group also includes Human Rights Watch, the Internet Archive, uh, certain other individuals, including someone who's a therapeutic massage therapist who has been kicked off of Craigslist because Craigslist is afraid of having anything right. yep. that could even arguably of uh, be connected to sex That's a rational business decision. It is. And, and you know, it just, it, it, by way of background, since you mentioned Human Rights Watch, I don't know if it's done this, but Amnesty International fairly recently came out in, against laws criminalizing prostitution, yes. right, as a matter of yes. basic human rights and women's well, rights. And, and what this does, though, is that anything that, quote, can arguably facilitate prostitution now that it can be prosecuted mm -hmm. uh, as a federal crime uh, and also now sued under state laws with the immunity provisions of Section 230 being modified. Uh, it means that anything that provides assistance yes. to sex workers of all kinds, exactly. things that keep them safe, yes. health information, safety of information, course. is now at risk on internet platforms. 
And because the platforms are being targeted, because it now removes those immunities, uh, they simply don't take any risks whatsoever. And so the effects that we saw immediately after passage of Fawcett were widespread across the internet. I think it is the largest single adverse reaction to a change in law since the Communications Decency Act in the 1990s. Which, by the way, is why I went to law school. I was so worked up about the 1995 Communications Decency Act. It's actually what led me to, to decide that I was going to go to law school. But its saving grace was it also contained Section 230. It was almost accidental. Yeah. I mean, Section 230 was added yeah. as, as, first as a poison pill to try and kill the censorial provisions of the Communications Decency Act. Now, Congress being Congress thought, oh, let's <laughs> adopt both. Section 230, which allows platforms to police themselves and not face liability, uh, and the prohibitions on indecent speech, because why not? We're going to treat the, the entire okay. internet just like just, it's a radio station. Just for so, you kids out there, I want to explain. The Communications Decency Act literally tried to ban indecency on the internet, right. <laughs> which is which is, or, which is mind-blowing. And it took me getting it. So I, I, I was working on this when um, I, I got really interested in this area of law in like 1994 when I was like a, a sophomore 10 junior. 10 years old? <laughs> <laughs> sophomore, junior in college. And this was, this was what I was obsessed with all this stuff. And the uh, and I was kind of disappointed that my first semester of law school in 1997 was ACLU v Reno. So like it happened right before I started, and I was like so excited to like have these arguments. I was a little disappointed. Almost and that's happened. when I met you. I came yeah. to Stanford Law School to speak about it. it yeah. And it almost happened too soon. But this, Raj, you'll appreciate this. Um, the thing that took forever to dawn on me, um, which I'm kind of embarrassed about now, is kind of like, wait a second, Congress passed something they knew was unconstitutional <laughs> on purpose. Oh, uh, that I, could never happen. I was a more optimistic, <laughs> less cynical person back then. Well, they tried to do that with flag burning too, right? Yes. Yeah. You had well, the flag burning case and we, they tried to come. We came, well, first there was the Supreme Court decision in 1989 saying there's a First Amendment right. Uh, to engage in symbolic speech that in, can include desecration of the flag. Congress then adopted federal legislation to respond to that, knowing that it was unconstitutional and that it was struck down in 1991 uh, as being unconstitutional. But then, in the early 2000s, 2004 or 5, Congress came within one vote of passing an amendment to the First Amendment mm -hmm. to allow mm -hmm. um, prosecution for people who would desecrate the flag. And, and I think that's so interesting because, and I often cite that, that history, uh, to the best of my knowledge, it is the only time there's been a serious attempt to cut back on the First Amendment through constitutional amendment. And so, you know, today you hear these public opinion polls about hate speech and racist speech being so unpopular. But I think if we were to give the American public in general the power to censor unpopular speech, it would probably be desecration of the flag or oh, unpatriotic and, and, speech. And it just changes over time, whatever is on the public radar screen at a given time, which is why the principles have to hold in times when the speech is most unpopular, because we know we are going to see event after event. And if you simply say, well, We'll protect speech, except for those things that people really, really hate. Uh, then over time, you see the ratchet go the other way and less and less protection for speech. I think it was you, Bob. I was at an event at the museum where you went through the history of the Communications Decency Act. And I think you referenced a Time Magazine cover uh, that really just says, wow, people thought the sky would fall with the Internet. Well, no one knew what the Internet was. I mean, there were just... And we should probably say what was on the you magazine know, cover. Okay, yeah. I, I will. It, this, the series we're talking of tubes. About 1995, 
1995, there were maybe, what, 20 million people who knew what the internet was? <laughs> uh, and so the, the cover of Time magazine was about cyber porn. This was, this was America's introduction to the internet. And it was just a, a child's face bathed in the glow of a screen, so this sort of blue cast to his face, and he just looks shocked and aghast. And people are finding out that they've been talking about indecency on radio and TV. They've been looking in the wrong place because now we have this new technology where your children are going to be turned into Internet zombies by you know, porn coming into your homes. Uh, and so that created a wave of hysteria, which led to Senator Exxon introducing an amendment to be added to the rewrite of the Telecommunications Act in 1996, well, 95 then, but uh, ultimately passed in 96. It led to efforts to try and block Exxon, which led to Section 230, and then it all got thrown in a blender and, and everything was passed together. And, and didn't they hold up that Time magazine cover in Congress? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was everywhere. And this was back when time had a, a serious... I have to explain that when I tell my students about this. This is a magazine. Um, time what, yeah, <laughs> yeah. How, and, and, you know, and then what, quite frankly, one wonders what's the motive. Did Time Magazine actually anticipate how dangerous the Internet was going to be to its existence? Did it possibly have sure. a conflict of interest? Uh, but what I think is so interesting is that this illustrates... Um, how quickly and dramatically what we are afraid of changes. Yeah. And whatever we're afraid of manifests itself in the specific subject of called for censorship. Yeah. So before the internet hit people's radar screens, we had the Oklahoma City bombing. And remember, yes. a lot of um, uh, violence by anti-government uh, activists on the right. And there was something called hate radio. Yep. And there was a big attempt to censor that and to uh, censor hate radio and bomb-making instructions. Wait, right. And then in the 90s, the panic was about child sexual exploitation. Well, in, so in, we wanted to send, that's why we got the Communications Decency In 1985, Act. it was porn rock. And that's, oh, of course, remember, right. And uh, gangster rap, uh, anti-police violence, yeah. Sure. Sure. And now it's so, now it's disinformation and, yeah. and hate and, speech. And fake news. Yeah. And depending yeah. on which side of the political spectrum you come from, that can be anything. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's one moral panic after another. But you guys should be delighted, though, because we're not seeing calls for censorship, mm -hmm. government censorship of the Internet. That is not happening. And by historic standards, Well, it depends on what you mean is, by censorship. I mean, what was FOSTA? I mean, good old-fashioned, you can't say this. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know enough about FOSTA to comment. Well, as a matter of fact, me, you, this are, is you are seeing that in various forms. And one of the things that is a byproduct of having a strong jurisprudence that says you can't censor is right. that you see a lot of efforts to work around that. Right. Various kinds of workarounds that have the effect of censorship, but aren't called censorship because, after all, censorship would be a bad thing. And so what you see are bills like Senator Hawley's bill mm -hmm. uh, that would require the FTC to certify Internet platforms every three years to make sure that they aren't discriminating between different political parties when they enforce their terms of use and enforce their editorial policies. What could go wrong? Yeah. <laughs> and Jonathan, I thought when you and I had another recent exchange that that was one subject where we disagreed. You seem to be more favorable, at least then, to some kind of government regulation of social media. No, 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 no. Okay, no, I'm sorry. I no, no government oh, I'm glad I misunderstood you. 
Okay. Um, and in fact, the point I was driving toward is there will always be policy disputes. Mm -hmm. um, but isn't it remarkable how difficult it has been for the United States um, to even entertain the idea of direct censorship mm -hmm. of the internet? I mean, what earlier era would we have seen yeah. that be so difficult for governments as powerful as they are? So we have a lot to be grateful for. Uh, where we do disagree is on what the policies of internet publishers, you call mm. them platforms, mm -hmm. they're in fact publishers, mm -hmm. I agree. ought mm -hmm. to be. Uh, mm -hmm. And there I disagree with, with you all. I think they should be more aggressive, not less aggressive in selecting content. I think that's a publisher's duty. Mm -hmm. uh, but I come from a different world than you guys. You're First Amendment lawyers. I'm a journalist. Mm -hmm. And people forget the other side of the First Amendment, mm -hmm. which is the sovereign right of publishers oh, of to course, decide yeah. what not well, to print well, and no, to we, say we, we this is a certain right. kind of environment we and we don't want that other sort of thing here. Yeah. No, I agree with you. And I think that publishers should exert that power. It's called editing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think we have forgotten that. But the reason why we don't see calls for direct censorship by that name today is because the Supreme Court got it right in 1997 when it struck down Unanimously. the anti-indecency yeah. provisions yeah. of the yeah. CDA. And it was because relief. after 80 years of First Amendment jurisprudence, for the very first time when the court was looking at a new technology, it said, this is fully protected. And the legacy of that was 20 years of really strong presumptions for internet freedom. And you still see that in Supreme Court decisions like in the Packingham decision two terms ago. Um, but you also see erosion because for all of these principles, it's always a constant argument yes. over no. where the boundaries are. And the companies right. are being pressured by the laws that are being passed and the judicial decisions that are being rendered in other countries Germany, and by yes. regional yeah, human rights, so-called human rights courts. Um, that are, are, are uh, and, and there was a recent decision by a European court that has required Facebook to uh, enforce internationally Austria's definition of defamation, of punishable defamation, which was a citizen using some insulting language against the head of the Green Party. And um, it was in German, but I live with a native German speaker, so I have an exact translation. <laughs> uh, this citizen, if you can believe, used three words against uh, the head of this political party. Corrupt, mm -hmm. vulgar, and I'm sorry, I can't remember the third one, but completely something, probably something that we can, <laughs> something that we can imagine Human wanting scum. to use against so we certain officials here. Hearings. And and that and the ruling of the court is that Facebook has to adhere to yeah. that decision around the world. But, but this does get to, to to John's point too. At the same time, is that if you want to look for sort of linear censorship, like yeah. just going from A straight to B, um, it's happening um, to a shocking extent in the free world outside of the United States. The right to be forgotten, for example, you know, is just, as far as I'm concerned, the, the worst innovation in censorship I've seen in my lifetime. But also the, um, in enforcing uh, things that are um, cruel to President Erdogan yeah. in Germany, yeah. which is absolutely, yeah. uh, absolutely yeah. insane. And so like we get to see this really, and uh, like you were going to talk about the Angela Merkel thing, um, just this really uh, sort of return of, of very strident, old-fashioned, 19th century censorship uh, coming back into vogue in the, in the rest of the world. Yeah, you referenced Angela Merkel. I didn't know if we'd have time to get it, but since it's already been brought up, I want to read the two paragraphs that sort of went viral on the internet the other day. Uh, she was speaking to a group, I believe it was some sort of commerce-related group, 
and said, we have freedom of expression in our country. For all those who claim that they can no longer express their opinion, I say this to them. If you express a pronounced opinion, you must live with the fact that you will be contradicted. Expressing an opinion does not come at zero cost. Up to that point, pretty good, right? I'm with you. And I'm, I'm trusting the translation here. Uh, I'm not a native German speaker. <laughs> but she continues, but freedom of expression has its limits. Those limits begin where hatred is spread. They begin where the dignity of other people is violated. The House will and must oppose extreme speech. Otherwise, our society will no longer be the free society that it was. And she'd said this to roaring applause. I, I read reports of standing ovations. Uh, in, not, in, what was it, 2018, Nadine, you might know, they, they passed a It ban went on, into effect on January 1st, 2018, um, a ban on, well, so... Um, Germany has long had anti-hate speech laws, including in the Weimar Republic. Yes, they did. Note, right? Uh, very strictly uh, enforced, according to the Jewish organizations at the time. Nazis went enforced to jail for fairly, it. and Nazi yeah, leading Nazis. Um, uh, exactly, and guess what? They loved it. Going back to one of John's early points, it helped spread their message and made them sympathetic and. Um, so what has happened, on, and, and Germany having the toughest anti-hate speech laws already, and enforce, you understand because of their history, and I mean because of a superficial interpretation of their history, right? So they, you understand they want to at least symbolically denounce hate speech and obviously are unaware of how ineffective or think that they can make it effective now. But um, Germany has had a, just a distressing resurgence of anti-Semitic violence and anti-refugee and immigrant violence um, and anti- hate speech and, 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 But you know what? I've debated people in those countries and in the EU, and my interpretation is, well, this proves that those laws aren't working. Yeah. And their interpretation is that proves that we need more such laws and stricter such laws. Uh, so I think you have to point to the inevitable adverse consequences, uh, which may be unintended, but you should, if you know anything about logic as well as history, that you should be able to foresee. The minute that the new net NETS uh, DG law went into effect, which requires the social media companies within a very short time to take down anything that is labeled as somebody complains, this violates the hate speech law in Germany, they're required to take it down. Uh, predictably, within the first few hours, uh, the messages that were taken down were political messages by leaders of a very serious political party there. I mean, it's a political party whose values I abhor. It's extreme right. It's extreme uh, anti-immigrant. But these people wield significant power. They've got the third highest number of members in the German parliament. Don't we want to hear what they're saying? And no sooner were their policy statements taken down, right? So it wasn't like racist slurs, mm -hmm. uh, but disagreeable policy, objectionable policy statements. You know, the very next day, there's a satirical magazine, the German equivalent of The Onion, that's mocking and ridiculing and deriding those comments, and they get taken mm -hmm. down. And protest artists and people who are crusading for human rights have been taken down under that law. So it's, it's, it's basically censoring 
anybody who says anything about uh, immigration or race or you know these important subjects. Well, it's not just political things either. I mean, it also goes artistic, to cultural and artistic, artistic yep. uh, mm -hmm. uh, things as well. And you have in the EU now the enforcement of blasphemy laws. Yes. Mm -hmm. Because if you say anything negative about a religion, uh, you know you can be subject of these hate speech laws, and so you know for atheists like me, uh, that's not good news for free speech. Yeah. Well, to position it in the context of America, I mean, these a lot of these social media companies are American companies, and to create a platform where you're abiding by all these different local speech codes, mm -hmm. essentially, I imagine is very difficult, and it's hard to foresee how any upstart social media company would be yeah. able yeah. to scale to accommodate those well, sorts of things. And that's one of the ways in which the changes since the 90s, and now that we're dealing with a global internet, yeah. with companies that have um, um, offices around the world in different countries and are subject to those countries' jurisdictions, that's the challenge of enforcing what we think of as free speech values and First Amendment values. Uh, for global media that are answerable to these governments around the world. And why it is so uh, threatening uh, about this ruling that uh, Nadine, you were just talking about, saying that we're going to take one country's law and apply it and enforce it for an entire platform. Well, and to get to uh, something that Nadine was saying about, um, and to also take it a little bit out of the, out of the realm of, of strictly law, one thing that's been a real pleasure is, is I've been working more on psychology for the past couple of years than, than, uh, than First Amendment law. but. When you spend time in there, you start realizing that there's so many principles within First Amendment law that appear to be very firmly rooted in social psychology, for example. And one, uh, and I'm working on a big paper on this. Um, it'll probably take me forever to actually finish it, working on it with Adam Goldstein and a couple other people um, at FIRE. But one thing that, that I, both Height and I are very serious about is the idea of group polarization, that essentially um, that when you start talking to people um, that you uh, agree with, you, you get more arguments on one side, but, um, and that's kind of the hydraulic Cass Sunstein idea, that you just end up with more uh, arguments. But then there's the sort of um, uh, tribalism kicks in too, and it becomes much more something that looks a lot more like religion. Now within First Amendment law, there's this idea that if we punish hate speech or we punish um, disfavored speech or blasphemous speech, you will drive it underground and that where it can fester. That's an argument that I was always kind of like, I think this is true, but it's not, that, doesn't, that sounds like a fairy tale. That, that doesn't sound all that persuasive. But when you think about it in terms of group polarization, um, censorship, no kidding, doesn't change anybody's mind. It just makes them more careful about where they say their actual opinion. By passing these laws, you are forcing people who have these despicable opinions to never talk to someone with a contrary opinion and to exclusively talk. And uh, hold on, uh, to, 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 to exclusively talk uh, to people who share their ideologies. Then they get a thousand times more arguments in favor of maybe their hateful view, and they also develop a sense of us versus them, uh, them tribalism. So I do think these two fields can really complement each other. But what Germany is doing at the moment, a lot of these other countries doing at the moment, I'm like, you just created a perfect machine that is going to replicate and intensify tribalism, radicalism, and uh, passion on, on the side that you're trying to shut down. But it's not just Germany. I think that, oh, absolutely, that tendency yeah, totally. is what explains events like Charlottesville. Yes, agreed. I, you know, I, I think that you have that undercurrent where you have this, quote, unite the right nonsense, where you bring out the Cretans with their tiki torches. Uh, and so you then have these tribal events where it ends up with fighting in the streets. And the principle generalizes beyond law. Mm -hmm. to society. Um, we haven't used the word Trump 
yet in this conversation. I, well, thank you for breaking the seal on that. I, I will go there. I will put my cards on the table. I'm a never-Trumper, um, but I, I cannot doubt that one of the things that empowered him to the presidency was the forces of political correctness and the feelings of a lot of Americans yeah. that they could no longer express themselves openly without being stigmatized and shamed, and that has been deeply counterproductive. Yeah. I completely I agree. agree. I did want to discuss defamation. Oh, do, do we, did we get to viewer questions, though? Or, 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 oh, or have right. these all been viewer questions? Oh, did, did you ask individual questions of Bob and Greg? You did it oh, so well, I asked, I asked yeah. Bob uh, about um, communications. Uh, right. Okay. No, you were next, Greg. I wanted to ask. You <laughs> <laughs> were, I promise. Is, is it comic books? <laughs> no, it's about your book, uh -huh. Coddling American Mind. Oh, I hope we get your comic book. <laughs> I love comics. Of course, the article came out, what was it, 2016? 2015. Wow. Oh, wow, was it that long? Yeah, wow, you were way ahead of the game. Right, right before, uh, it was kind of funny because like the, the joke I say is like, so we wrote this article about cancel culture and, and polarization on campus in 2015, and we solved the problem. <laughs> <laughs> and I just used that pause for you, what? But it got so much worse immediately after we wrote we it. We saw on campus between 2013 and 2017 yeah. a lot of changes. Yes. Um, violence on campus, the rise of campus disinvitations. I, I'm a relatively recent graduate of uh, yeah. um, college and 2012, I never heard the idea of microaggression policing yep. or bias response teams. Those weren't in existence when I was in college, and that was less than a decade ago. Mm -hmm. They did actually exist, just they were ex extremely marginalized, extremely rare. Yeah, well, people weren't talking about yep. them. They weren't in the public consciousness in the same way. Uh, anyway, the people who were in college during this era of the rise in campus censorship, call-out culture, yeah. um, microaggression policing, uh, are now graduating. And they are entering our corporate world or mm -hmm. our um, working world. Yep. Since your book came out in 2018, have you heard from any professionals or business <laughs> leaders about how this sort of call-out culture, this culture of vindictive protectiveness, as you call it in your book, has percolated? This no, is, no. This is what in my business we call a softball question. <laughs> Very softball. Well, Oh yeah, no, so much of it. And it's kind of funny, it's happened a couple times with my friends who are like the heads of um, uh, organizations that do direct services, for example, that like defend homeless people, that defend, uh, that do public defender type stuff. Um, I can't, I'm not, and they always say, don't name my name. Yeah. Um, and sometimes, because of you know, their political bent, I, I sometimes think they're going to be like, oh, this, this is the one person who's going to hate what I wrote in Coddling the American Mind. And I talk to them, and, and they're like, the students who are showing up on, at, in my organization from elite campuses have turned my organization into something where it's just interpersonal, uh, in, 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 interpersonal battles about ideas of how this office is oppressive rather than actually helping the oppressed people we're actually trying to help. So I'm with Height, um, and we're hearing these stories a lot again, um, uh, that this is all going about to get a lot worse. And I think that the end result of this, to, to a degree, is probably going to be a lot of corporations becoming a lot more um, hesitant about hiring people from elite colleges. Because a lot of the stuff we find is not as prominent at state schools, for, uh, mm -hmm. uh, for example. But the stories that I'm hearing um, really, they, they kind of blow me away. But I was invited to talk to, uh, I've been increasingly invited to talk to human, uh, human resources oh. um, or organizations. Mm -hmm. Because I, I, I was 
kind of joking about saying my one stop tick that, stock tip that came out of writing the book was invest in human research, uh, resources because they're going to be really busy. And that partially comes from something that we talk about in the book, this idea of someone growing up with a fully intermediate, where conflict is always intermediated, um, particularly, mostly we're talking about l largely upper middle class and upper class uh, people, but the, the experience that they have, and we talk about this in the book, you know, is that there is it basically if it's bullying in eighth grade or if it's any other kind of conflict, you go and tell an adult, so to speak. And that means that the adult in the, the, in the room in a lot of corporations is considered to be the human resources person. So rather than having the, uh, the, the difficulty of having to sort of hash something out with a, with a peer, you go immediately over their head. And that's completely dysfunctional for, for a working corporation. And I will predict there are going to be companies that absolutely fold um, because of these uh, unworkable dynamics. Yeah, well, co corporations, companies are different than, than uh, schools, of course, as we all know. But companies also have speech policies. There's, there are some companies that might be per, more permissive yep. in what their employees can say. There might be companies that are less permissive in what their employees can say. But in the workplace, Congress has passed laws that tell you kind of what is harassment, what isn't mm -hmm. harassment. And so my question is, some of these claims that someone's humanity or dignity has been afflicted or that another one of their colleagues engaged in hate speech. I mean, what are the responsibilities of, in, of companies to respond to the, those mm -hmm. sorts of things? Um, do they have hate speech codes? What, you know, what sort of leverage, I guess I should say, do people who want to engage in this vindictive protectiveness have against their employer? Against but plenty, um, unfortunately. The, um, and we've seen this. And, the, and if you told me before I started at FIRE, um, in 2000, well, actually not in 2001, by that time I knew. But if you told me, say, before I worked at the ACLU, um, it, I, I entered at the ACLU in 1999. If you told me maybe a little bit before that, that there was this constant abuse of harassment laws, I was so sort of brainwashed that I would have been like, that's, that's offensive, how dare you? Nobody wants anyone to be harassed, and I would have said it just like anybody else. Um, but then working at the ACLU, when I was talking about how great it was that um, uh, that, that, that the ACLU defends everybody, including the Nazis at Skokie. I actually had an ACLU employee, who were name unnamed, chastise me for, uh, we don't defend harassment. And I'm like, I didn't say anything about harassment. And that was really the biggest tell that I had that was like, oh, these are, these are since partially because even I wouldn't question what was in a harassment code because it was considered so off the, you know, it was so politically incorrect to actually even look into it, that um, I didn't realize that all of the speech codes that had been passed from 1987 to 1994 on college campuses, every single one of them were partially formulated as harassment rules because everybody thinks harassment rules are good, preventing harassment is good, mm -hmm. therefore you can put whatever you want in those codes. And unfortunately, I think that it, there, there is going to be some real abuse of harassment standards within I think there already are within corporations um, to uh, police ever smaller offenses. Um, I think th I think people who really, by the way, care about racial harassment and sexual harassment should be the most aggravated about mm -hmm. this because it ends up trivializing it. But I do think that it's a it's going to be in some of these corporations a much more brutal legalistic battle to use whatever human resources can give them and whatever regul regulations can give them to uh, create dysfunction within a, a lot of companies. Well, we had this debate a little bit in the 80s, and Jonathan, I think you wrote an article, was it for The Nation or The New Republic? New Republic. New Republic, yeah. I remember that. I dug this Punch up. Punch in, and, sit down, shut up. Yeah, in which you essentially <laughs> argued, if I'm recalling 
correctly that the government mandated employers to do what it itself. Nico, you were what, 13? <laughs> were you reading New Republic when you were 13? <laughs> but you That's were, amazing. No, I, I, I forget in what context I found it. You might have had it on your website. Probably. It's, it's received much too little attention. The Supreme Court has never ruled on these, on the First Amendment implications of workplace harassment law. Weirdly enough, it's we never stepped in. Yeah. Did you try? Yeah. We had a so really all kinds of stuff really goes on out there. A guy was punished because he was printing Bible verses on his paycheck, and an employee complained that that was a form of religious harassment. Um, a Christian complained that a neighboring cubicle, the guy had a picture of his same-sex spouse. The guy complained that that was harassment, yeah. workplace harassment, so the, the gay employee was forced to hide the photo. Mm-hmm. And these are, these are old cases. Yeah. This, um, People don't know this, but when I talk on campus about this, I argue that the, the ultimate, the original source of the campus culture now that's all about protection mm-hmm. from um, racial harassment in the form of speech is the 1989 Discriminatory Workplace Hostile Environment Doctrine, which mm-hmm. comes from, of all places, the George H.W. Bush Administration Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, mm-hmm. which and said employers need to keep their places of employment clear from harassment defined very broadly. So that now becomes... I'll give you a deeper historical pedigree. It comes from Catherine McKinnon and Andrea Dworkin. I mean, Catherine McKinnon, to her credit, created the concept of sexual harassment, which the devil is in the details, but you know, we could all agree on some narrow definition that does constitute gender discrimination. The problem is, consistent with their philosophy, any expression about sexuality or gender is, you know, inherently demeaning to women. And I predicted in uh, a book that I wrote in 1995 that this was going to be the Trojan horse for smuggling their view of pornography that should be censored. And this is defending pornography. It's in defending pornography. Um, And and somebody else... um, Illegal in Germany. There was another another legal scholar at the same time made the same prediction. And the incentive structure is different because the reason why the Supreme Court has not enforced the First Amendment in this context is private sector employers have no obligation to respect free speech under the Constitution or under any statute. But they do have statutory obligations to protect employees against sexual harassment. So it's a complete, you know, one-way incentive structure. Right. And the intersection between this topic and what we were talking about earlier with regulation of the Internet and how you don't see straightforward regulations designed to censor the Internet is how when we first, after the Supreme Court clarified this, that the Internet is fully protected, the first case after that was a case I handled in Loudoun County involving library filtering, mandatory library filtering of internet terminals in the public library. And it was called an internet sexual harassment policy. Mm-hmm. And so rather than saying we're going to censor the internet, uh, the idea was we're simply going to require filters to censor speech, and we're going to call it an anti-harassment code. Well, some workers were employees and patrons were complaining that the mere fact that somebody in the library was looking at some sexual image did constitute harassment from their subjective perspective. Yeah. 
And also, yeah. uh, one thing that I always want to point out is that the fire has seen uh, 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 dozens of cases, many more, where harassment is abused in really transparent ways um, to get that clearly protected speech that oftentimes has a, a passing thing to do with sex. One of the most famous fire cases of all time is at Indiana University, Purdue University in Indianapolis. This is the guy who was reading the book, um, uh, The Notre Dame versus the Klan. And that, what, they, what did they bring him up on charges for? Racial harassment, because people found, literally found the book, the cover, the, judging a book by its cover, finding the cover offensive. Um, Azar Majid wrote something on the Huffington Post maybe five years ago that was just a, just a laundry list of cases where you, you, you'd have to scratch your head to figure out why on earth, how on earth could this possibly be their sexual racial harassment? But nonetheless, um, it, that, that was the tool that, the, that universities fell back on. Well, in good news from the Trump administration, it's predicted that Betsy DeVos's new Title IX regulations are going to very narrowly define punishable sexual harassment on campus. I don't know if that will have a spillover effect into the workplace, mm. but it could have a positive effect we'll on campus. We'll define it consistent with yeah. the, the Davis standard, the Davis standard exactly. which Fire has been advocating for forever. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was just thinking of the Purdue case because as part of research for the book that I'm doing now, I was reading the book, Words That Wound, mm -hmm. which is the book by Richard Delgado et al., proposing speech codes and anti-hate speech laws. Uh, but on my commuter train, where I was doing this research, I thought, I can't show the cover of this book because mm. it has a swastika on it. <laughs> and so I, I thought of the Purdue case and thought, I don't want to get in trouble on a commuter train. Yeah. So we're running out of time here. We've got about five to ten minutes left. I want to wrap up by turning over to a few listener questions. Uh, one that I want to address to you, Greg, uh -oh. because this is a hobby horse of yours. First of all, how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> Just just don't, don't hurt his feelings. <laughs> this is another soft one, softball one for you. He is my boss, after mm. all. We have to coddle. <laughs> Coddling of the Lukianov. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to hit my cash bonus button. <laughs> it's the holiday season, after all. This one is from Twitter. This is from, and I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. This is Obeyed Omer. He said, how can we inculcate the thinking that free speech goes beyond laws? If we only think of it as a legal issue, we can create laws to limit it. How do we do that? Wow, I've been thinking about that my whole career. Um, you know, everyone has their preferred sort of metaphor or way, way of thinking about it. Now, of course, I have this ongoing argument with uh, Ken White at Popat that he doesn't believe that free speech culture is like really, really thing, and I think that's I, I think that's just nonsense. Um, my, I'm going to be writing. I, I talk about this to death to anybody who actually knows me, but I realize I haven't written about it, and I'm going to be writing a lot more about this idea. Um, next year is that we've got the marketplace of ideas, Oliver Wendell Holmes' idea, and it's a good idea. Um, it's it's good. It's good, particularly when it comes to political battles of trying to figure out who should who should win. Um, but it's a very small part, in my opinion, of what the value of free speech is. And rather than thinking like lawyers, um, we should be thinking like scientists when it comes to freedom of speech. And I think, and one of the things that I tell people is. Um, when you hear someone say something horrible or something that you don't know, put on rather than put on your, your, your war hat, put on your anthropologist hat, put on your scientist hat, and be curious about where that person is coming from. And I call this the, sort of the project of human knowledge. The goal of knowledge, of human knowledge, is to know everything about everything that we possibly can, especially what people are really like. And so from that perspective, there's something not just bizarre, but kind of childish about saying, 
you should not say that um, because because I find it offensive. Like if you think of it from like the point of view of a scientific point of view, the question is, you know, like if an orangutan behaves in horrible behaviors, which they do, you you, you don't want to go. We we can't report this. This is offensive. <laughs> you, you write it down and try to figure out where they're coming from. And I think that a lot more of sort of openness to like the idea of like um, so some, like people bring up conspiracy theories too. It's kind of like, and they say, well, surely conspiracy theories can't be protected. And I'm like, don't you want to know? if conspiracy theories are going on. I mean, conspiracy theories like the, the, the Protocols of Elder to Zion changed history. Um, you're putting your head in the sand by not knowing that. So I think that rethinking the way we tell these stories, the way we explain these principles, um, the idea of kind of radical openness and trying to understand the world precisely as it is um, gets you a lot further than the marketplace of but ideas. The, the other half of that too, because so often those of us who are in this field think of free speech by trying to define free speech values. Mm -hmm. And there's so much written about it. And, and, and But I think we really truly understand free speech by understanding censorship. It's like a superhero movie. You've got to have a good villain, right? Yeah. Uh, but free speech law in America didn't really develop until we had censors, until the censors defined what it was to be restricting speech. It yeah. wasn't that you had the Supreme Court finally saying, oh, I think we want, um, you know, people to self-realize, and I think we want people to do deliberative democracy. That was part of the reasoning process, but only when they had to confront what was happening in politics, what was happening with laws being passed, what was happening for 40 years under Anthony Comstock. And it was a reaction to that, of understanding the evils of censorship, that we began to develop what free speech yep. means. And, you know, it's, it's useful to keep in mind that the First Amendment isn't a guarantee of deliberative democracy. It's not a guarantee of self-realization or enlightenment. It's a guarantee that we're not going to allow the government to censor you. It's about censorship. I think that's a really good point. And I would add to the excellent question that um, to it's not enough to talk about the culture of free speech in the abstract, you have to contrast it to a culture of non-free speech. Mm -hmm. At least 99% of the time, people's argument in favor of censorship starts and ends with the harm that speech can do. Mm -hmm. And I agree, speech can do great harm, but nobody ever analyzes what is the harm in censorship, or even does censorship prevent or reduce the harm in the free speech. Yeah. Last question here from uh, another correspondent on Twitter, Patrick Lockwood. He said, what's the best argument against free speech absolutism? Nadine, I want to direct this to you, and I want to kind of twist his question. Yeah, it I, I know. It's a, Is there, it's have such, you ever met a free speech absolutist? It's such a straw person, because even the most adamant defenders of freedom of speech, including everybody yep. around this table, acknowledge that something that does in clearly, indisputably involve speech and expression can and should be censored uh, if it satisfies appropriately strict standards. But that's and why Stanley, Stanley Fish says there's no such thing as free speech so because there's no such thing as a free speech. We spent 100 years developing free speech doctrine by looking at examples of censorship over time. There's no such thing as a First Amendment absolutist, except in the writings of First Amendment skeptics and First Amendment <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. We're the straw person that they, they have to knock down. They cannot use the word First Amendment advocate without using the word 
absolutist or, or fundamentalist or fundamentalist uh, or you know some other term like that treating it like it's a religion yeah I, I, I mean I when I heard First Amendment absolutist I, I first say thank you for the compliment um, <laughs> but I'm not uh, and the, the thing that what, it, it's really instructive to try to explain this stuff um, if you also it's very masochistic uh, to do to try to explain First Amendment law uh, United States First Amendment law when, when you're over in Europe for example <laughs> and I've done I've done this a lot and I and I'm glad to get people being uh, coming to the point of being like, wow, that doesn't sound quite as completely batshit crazy as exactly. we thought it was. Yeah. Because they do assume. They come, they, and you yeah, have to explain. It's like, I actually think right. that, I, I, I think the way we do it with the categorical approach makes sound psychological sense. We're better with by, by having strict categories. I think that keeping them strictly limited, I think we do a lot of very clever things. And, and when I talk about American First Amendment law, you know, I, I explain that I think it's the, um, well, I, you know, I'm not trying to be like totally just America booster, but on this thing, we've done, we've had some of our brightest minds thinking about how to make free speech real in the real world, yeah. um, I think better than almost any other body of thought. Mm -hmm. So we need to wrap up here. I want Before I wrap up though, I wanna ask for in 30 seconds or less, final thoughts. <laughs> Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the direction of free speech in this country and the protections that the First Amendment provides? John? Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm very optimistic. I mean, among other things, the Supreme Court, despite all of its ideological differences and disagreements on other issues, is a very strong supporter. And we have wonderful Except organizations. Except in the defamation context. Uh, in we general, the, well, but Clarence the court Thomas. has been extremely, extremely good. And we have wonderful organizations, including FIRE and others that are represented around the table that are working full tilt mm -hmm. uh, and making a big difference. Thank you. Greg? Um, well, first of all, I want to say congratulations on the 100th episode. Thank you. Absolutely amazing that I get to be sitting around a table with a lot of my free speech heroes. It's just like a, a real pleasure. I'm actually pretty pessimistic, um, but particularly also because I try to see everything globally too. Um, I think that the democratic recession, the liberal recession, is going to get worse. Um, and I think that the tribalism um, that John and I talk about in Coddling of the American Mind is at least in the near term going to be terrifying and I think it's going to it's going to have ramifications for free speech both as a cultural value and I think with time a a legal value as well. So I'm actually more I am I I wrote a book called Freedom from Speech in in 2014 and my point in that is that even though I agree that I'd rather live now than almost any other time as some things get better and we get more comfortable and there's more progress other things get worse. We get we get out of practice of disagreeing with people constructively. We actually therefore become more uh, more likely to believe that they should be censored, and there there ought to be a law um, start sticking over. So I actually think that a problem of progress is going to consistently be as those things get better. Um, uh, that respect for free speech uh, for the pain and difficulty and sort of emotional hardship it is to live with freedom of speech is going to get worse and manifest it more through law. Bob? You hit it right on the 30 seconds. Uh, uh, I'm optimistic, but I recognize all of the challenges that Greg just mentioned, and that's why the debate never ends. Never. No case is ever fully won. The fight has to continue. The educational process has to continue. As Jonathan pointed out in his book uh, so well, the First Amendment or in free speech presumes that the debate never ends, and so, so does the struggle for preserving freedom of speech. Well, thank you, everyone. This has been a Fun Thank conversation. you. I hope Thank you'll you. have me back before the 200th episode. <laughs> <laughs> Write another book about free speech, Jonathan. Oh, what is you're doing an update to uh, to your book? What isn't something coming out this I'm, year? I'm writing a defense of reality. I think of it. It's called the Constitution of Knowledge. Still, still on the boards there. Still thinking it through. Wow. So it's not. I love the input wow. of all of you. Of course, you don't have a publication date yet. <laughs>
No, I don't have a publisher yet. I'm working on that. I don't know if there's any publishers. I have there. a new epilogue to my book about social media coming out in March. Oh, I'd love a return is that invitation. With the hardcover? Or no, the it's hardcover, a paper paperback. Excuse mm -hmm. me. Yeah. And Bob is working on a book too. Yeah, it's great. Can we talk about that? It's so cool. Are we there still time? <laughs> <laughs> the name of it? The name of it is The Mind of the Censor and the Eye of the Beholder, um, doing nice. it for Cambridge University Press. Uh, and it is about the psychology of censorship and why we need to look at censors if we really want to understand free speech. Well, stay tuned for that. I'm sure we'll have you back on to discuss it. Uh, a, a quick show note before we end here. Our next episode is scheduled for the day after Christmas, Boxing Day, which uh, because Greg, half of his family is British. Uh, we take very seriously. It's very serious, so the office is closed. So uh, we're going to push that next episode back a week to Thursday, January 2nd. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, recorded by Aaron Reese and Chris Maltby, and edited by Aaron Reese. You can learn more about us on Twitter at twitter.com slash free speech talk and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. We get feedback at so to speak at thefire.org. We also take reviews. It is the holiday season. And if you want to give us anything, please give us a review at Apple Podcasts or Google Play to help us attract new listeners to the show. And thank you again for helping us make it to 100 episodes, and we'll see you all in 2020. Happy holidays, everyone. <laughs>